Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable change makers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E presents Healing Conversations, featuring your host, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning, everybody. This is Mildred Lynn McDonald, and I'm your host for Healing Conversations. Thank you for joining us today. We have John Carousella. Good morning. And also we're joined by High C. Ludemers. Hello, hello. Before we begin, I'm going to read a little quotation that I found. It really hit me. And from the quotation, we're going to talk about three questions. Being generous often consists of simply extending a hand. That's hard to do if you're grasping tightly onto your righteousness, your belief system, your superiority, your assumptions about others, or your definition of normal. So the first part of the quote made a lot of sense to me. Being generous often consists of simply extending a hand. But to be honest, I had never thought about the qualifiers that came after in the second sentence, the qualifiers like righteousness or belief system or superiority or assumptions about others. So what I'd like to throw out there now for John and for High C is let's start at the basics. What does generosity mean to you? Generosity is an act of openness for me. It presumes goodwill on the part of the person to whom I'm being generous. I think those qualifiers are really powerful. If I don't feel that the person to whom I'm being generous has good intention, if I don't presume goodwill on their part, it's really hard for me to be generous because it's a process of opening myself up in order to give something of myself, whether it's my resources or kind words or my thoughts or perceptions about a particular situation. If I can't be in a place where I'm not defensive, I think it's hard for me to be generous. So you definitely have qualifiers on your generosity. It's a qualifier on generosity as a concept. The thing about it's hard when you're holding tight to your idea of what's normal is a really big one. I think that was one of the hardest things for me to let go of to see people not as broken and needing to be fixed, but to see them as human and wanting to be helped. Those are very, very different perspectives for me. And Hi C, what about you? Can you generously share your opinion on generosity? (laughs) 
I think at its essence, for me, I have found that generosity is simply an intuitive urge, an intuitive compulsion, an intuitive hit that says, offer this, and it will often, I mean, and usually it will also be for a certain person. So, for example, if I just happen to be walking through a store and I see something, I might all of a sudden look at something and immediately a person comes into my head and the thought is, oh, this would be perfect for this person or whatever. And then following through on that is actually the act of generosity. I think there's a difference between being generous and the act of generosity. You can be generous, but if you don't take action on that, then I'm not sure how much good it really does. So that's what I have found in a sense for me that generosity is, is just listening to whenever those intuitive hits happen. And it doesn't have to mean buying something in a store. It may mean coming across a story on the internet and suddenly thinking of a person when I'm reading it and then making sure I pass it on to them. Generosity is that intuitive sense that gives you a sudden insight as to who, what, when is the right moment and the right thing for passing something along that may in some way be of benefit to someone else. It's just sometimes I may not know what that benefit might be. I just trust the intuitive hit. Your definition of generosity seems to be linked to intuitive thoughtfulness. Yes. Yeah. When I look at the word generosity, what comes in for me is joyfulness. So being generous is almost equal to being joyful because I get such a sense of happiness and joy by being generous. Now, I'd like to move on to the second question. What do you have to let go of to be a truly generous person? And what I mean by that is, what do you grasp tightly that might stand in the way of you being generous, if there's anything? Because I know you two are pretty close to perfection. <laughs> I mentioned earlier the, the idea of what is normal for someone else. It really comes down to the idea that somebody might be sufficiently different from me that what looks like help to me might actually not be help to them. And so I have to give up my idea that I know what's best for them and offer what I have without any attachment to whether it's accepted. In a way, for me, it's letting go of my own ego around why someone should accept my help or would accept my help or my generosity in whatever form. I know for myself, sometimes I get a bit deflated because person that I'm aiming, and I say aiming like an arrow, mm -hmm. my generosity towards may not be in the mood to receive right. my generosity. On my life path, I had to learn to find the joy in giving, but not get involved in whether or not I'm received or not. And that was huge for me, because I wanted that complete equation. If I was experiencing the joy of being generous and giving, I wanted them to experience the joy of receiving. So that took a little bit of work to untangle that one and bring it to a place of neutral. Now, see, what about you? What do you grasp tightly that might stand in the way of being generous, if anything? One thing I would say is perhaps building on what you were just talking about I think that generosity has to involve reciprocity, but 
that doesn't mean expecting something in return and we only give when we think we're going to get something. What it actually means is when you were talking about that joy of giving, it's being willing to receive when someone else is being generous towards you rather than dismissing it because you don't want to impose or it can get into deeper things for some people about not feeling worthy. And so if I experience the joy of being able to do something for someone and then in return, they want to cook me dinner and I'm like, oh, no, 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 you don't have to go to that trouble. There's no need for you to do anything. I was happy to do it. What I'm actually doing is I'm denying them the opportunity to experience the same joy of being generous in whatever way they can. And that's what I mean by reciprocity, is the willingness to receive generosity just as much as there is a willingness to give and to be generous so that we don't stand in the way of someone else's experience of what it's like to be generous the same way that we like to experience that joy of giving and being generous. The second thing I would say is moving beyond, like in the quote that you had, that sense of either righteousness or a belief system. And an example for me would be when a friend of mine was in the hospital and in a nursing home, and I would go and visit her, and she had all sorts of health problems. (laughs) The one thing that she would ask me is, would you mind going down to the store and getting me a pack of cigarettes? Which, of course, she would have to keep hidden in a nursing home. (laughs) Obviously, was not good for her health. And my issue was looking at it from that standpoint and therefore not having a willingness to want to provide that for her because I thought that it was just doing detriment to her health. And surely that isn't what is right for her or that's not what is needed for her. And so it was having to let go of that belief system and accept that she also can make her own choices and If my part in generosity is simply the ability to be her mode of transportation and delivery for something that she's not able to do for herself, then I had to perhaps say, okay, maybe I just am generous enough to do as she asks, but I'm not the one who's lighting the cigarette. Now, some people could argue that it's more generous to say no and not go get the cigarette. But there's this dilemma of, is that an imposition of my own belief about what is best for her, which goes back to some of what John was talking about? Or is that truly being generous because it's a recognition of this would do harm to her and my generosity is to do something that is going to prevent further harm from being done? It's not necessarily something I have an answer to. It's just that that's the dilemma. So when you're being generous, what do you expect in return? I thought about this one for a bit, Mildred Lynn. It was kind of tricky. I think what I expect in return is courtesy. I don't necessarily expect or have to have gratitude, just courtesy. As long as you're not being cruel to me or dismissive to me, in my generosity, then I feel that I can make the rest of it balance out on my own. But if in the act of being generous, I'm being slapped, I expect more than that. So I do have a little bit of expectation. 
So what would courtesy look like? For example, you present me with a beautiful new spring hash. What would be courtesy? Thank you, John? Yeah, I guess just to thank you or the absence of a dismissive snarl. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like like it, I usually do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm talking about. It doesn't have to be very much. It just has to not be negative. It's interesting that you said courtesy because what came up for me is respect. Hmm. Because I'm a creative person, but sometimes my generosity may take the form of something unconventional. Like a crazy hat. Like a crazy hat, and I have been on the receiving end where there wasn't respect there. I may have been dismissed or whatever, and it ended up hurting my feelings. It didn't deter me from presenting the next hat. I will say that. (laughs) It's a simple respect for the spirit in which the generosity is offered, whether or not you get it, you want it, you need it, you don't need it. Honoring the spirit of the generosity. Now, what about you, High C? Well, I think, and I touched on this, you know, a minute ago, but for me, ultimately, generosity should be done with no expectation. And therefore, there should be nothing that is needed, wanted, or expected in return for the generosity. That, to me, includes whether someone says thank you or not. If I give something to someone and they turn around and throw it away in a garbage can, then I don't get upset because the generosity, in some ways, the generosity was for me. It's If I go back to the intuitive aspect, it's like my intuition says this is something that needs to be done and it seems to be in my higher interest or higher purpose or most beneficial purpose. Then whatever I'm getting from the act of generosity is enough and therefore I need nothing else from anyone else, including the recipient, in order to receive the karmic benefit from having engaged in the act of generosity. For you, I see generosity is an act of service to the self first, I guess, right? In the, in the sense that the rest of it doesn't matter. So it really, as long as you're, as long as you do it, you receive the benefit, as you say, the karmic benefit. It's it's in service to your to your own destiny. Right. Hmm. Because ultimately, it's to my own karmic benefit. The more that I enhance and increase my karmic benefit, the more ultimately it enhances and increases the karmic benefit for all sentient beings, if I use very Buddhist terminology. Right. Um, and I may not see what the ultimate result of that generosity is if I'm looking for the indication or the fulfillment of the expectation in the moment. Because it may be that that person that turned around and threw something in the trash five years from now has somehow grown or changed or something has occurred to them in some way and they remember that incident and then they turn around and say, you know, I'm going to try to make up for that even though I don't know where that person is that gave me that thing that I threw in the trash. I'm going to try to make up for it by now turning around and giving something to somebody else. So ultimately the ripple of that generosity actually comes to some sort of more what we might consider positive fruition. But if I'm looking for that fruition in that moment and it doesn't happen, then I do myself a disservice because I start to go into negative emotion that is directed towards perhaps myself and or towards the other person, which in some ways is then neutralizing and negating the energy of the generosity in the first place. 
do you have a better experience if someone, for example, offers you courtesy or respect or gratitude back, or is it neutral no matter what? It may be a quote-unquote better experience, but it's learning because, you know, one of the words that was used in the previous question was about what do you grasp tightly to? Mm. And so in Buddhism, you even say if you grasp tightly to that feeling of satisfaction or happiness, that's just as much of a condition for possibly creating suffering as it is grasping onto the negative feeling or experience. Because then we start to want or need or expect that positive feeling from every time we're generous. Mm. And so when we're confronted with a situation where it doesn't happen, we may get angrier, we may get more depressed, we may get more frustrated. And that's just falling back into what it is that was trying to be avoided in the first place, which was having no expectation. Certainly you can feel good from somebody expressing gratitude or being courteous or whatever. It's just not holding on to that as this is what I need to see or experience whenever I'm generous in order to feel as if the generosity was somehow worth it or valid or right in some way. I strive to get where you are, Hi C, but I'm in a place where I find my way is more fun. <laughs> <laughs> At least for the present moment, and I'd love to talk about this a little bit more, but we're going to move on to the next segment of the show. Before we do that, I'm going to read the quote once more for our listeners. Generosity. Being generous often consists of simply extending a hand. That's hard to do if you're grasping tightly to your righteousness, your belief system, your superiority, your assumptions about others, your definition of normal. And that quote is from Life is a Verb, 37 Days to Wake Up, Be Mindful, and Live Intentionally. And on that note, I would like to thank John Carousella and High C. Lettimers for their generosity in being here this morning and sharing their thoughts. Thank you so much, John. Oh, always a pleasure. And High C., thank you to you, too. I was happy to be here. <laughs> All right, then. Thank you very much, everybody, and stay tuned for the next segment of the show, which will be available in just a few minutes. We'll be talking to Mary Reynolds-Thompson, and she'll be talking about her new book, Reclaiming Your Wild Soul. Well, that's our roundtable for this week. Many thanks to Mildred Lynn McDonald and participants John Carousella and Heisey Lutmers. We hope you found this roundtable discussion engaging and thought-provoking. If you would like to join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash fireflywillows and add your comment under this week's roundtable post. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is Mildred Lynn McDonald, and I'm your host for Healing Conversations. Thank you for joining us today. In our next segment, we'll be talking to Mary Reynolds-Thompson. Mary is an author, facilitator of poetry and journal therapy, and a certified life coach who helps people discover and live their wild soul story so they can bridge the false divide between outer and inner nature, earth and self, to become fully creative, connected, and alive. 
Join us today as she introduces her new book, Reclaiming the Wild Soul, How the Earth's Landscapes Restore Us to Wholeness. Mary will take us on a fascinating journey into the Earth's five great landscapes, deserts, forests, oceans and rivers, mountains and grasslands. She'll share how the deserts model simplicity and silence, how the forests help us make peace with uncertainty, how rivers and oceans reveal the power of flow, how mountains inspire our highest purpose, and how grasslands teach us about giving back. So let's give Mary a warm welcome to the program. Mary, are you there? I am, Mildred Lynn. I'm very happy to be here. I'm located in Nova Scotia, Canada today, and Mary is in beautiful, and I'm assuming sunny California? Yes, after a foggy morning, the sun has now broken through, and it is sunny with a slight breeze. I noticed on your website you wrote, The earth and your own soul require you to live magnificently and fiercely. It is time for a new story. So I sat back, I read it again, and I said to myself, what's the new story? Can you share, Mary? (laughs) Yes, a good question. First, if I may, I'd like to say just a little bit about what I think the old story is. So I think right now we're living in a story that's due date has come, and that story is that we humans are separate and superior to the earth. And we're not part of it. We're not part of this incredible Earth community. And out of that story, I think, comes a lot of emotions and feelings and behaviors that really speak to a sense of isolation, a sense of aloneness, because to be just separate from the world is a very lonely, alienated place to be. Now, the new story this story that really speaks to a much, much more ancient wisdom, which is that we are part of the earth, that we are an expression of the earth. You might even go as far as saying that we are the earth in human form, just as a river and a rock and a rainbow are the earth in their particular forms, so that we are not on this earth but we are off this earth. Now, if we can live into that, it sort of changes everything. It's a shift in perspective that is really fundamental to who we are, to saying who we are as human beings. And when you were inspired to express this new story, how did that happen? Were you sitting under a tree one day and it occurred to you that, hey, there's a new story? (laughs) No, I love that. No, the apple did not fall from the tree like (laughs) Newton. No, it really came over me in waves. And one of the big turning points for me was when in the early 2000s I began to study as a facilitator of poetry therapy. And I was immediately drawn to the nature poet. And what I realized is that their eye was always on outer nature, so they described the beautiful natural world around them, but they always returned us to our inner nature. 
And I began to be fascinated by this dance between the wild landscapes inside of us and the wild landscapes outside of us. And I began to think more and more about that relationship and what it meant. And then, <laughs> and then I came across the great Thomas Berry. I was reading in his book, Dream of the Earth, that he was saying that we humans are not just physically comprised of the earth. We are psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally comprised of the earth. So as I read the nature poets and this profoundly startling statement began to sort of take root in me, I became deeply fascinated by the concept of what would happen if we began to see ourselves really not just physically as part of the earth, but imaginatively, creatively, spiritually. I'm here saying, wow, what do you feel the natural world has to teach us? We're part of the natural world. It's mind, body, spirit, emotion, and dream. We are of the essence. So what does the world have to share with us to teach us that we're missing? I think in the biggest sense, Mildred Lynn, what the world has to teach us is what it means to be wholly human. So when I talk about reclaiming the wild soul, I believe that a part of us is so wounded, our, perhaps our most authentic and natural part of us, when we separate from the earth. And it's almost like a wounded animal that goes off into hiding. And so we don't feel often as alive, as vital, as fulfilled as we can be. And this sort of separation from the earth leaves almost an empty hole inside of us that we have learned and been told that we can fill by buying stuff, doing more, having more, possessing more, all of those things. But it never works because it isn't the answer. Because what the natural world teaches us is the answer is to mend that false divide, to bring back wildness into our lives, to bring back our relationship with the natural world as a core part of who we are and how we go about living. It reminds me of what David Suzuki had to share. He's a Canadian icon, an environmentalist, and many more things, a scientist, and has really dedicated his life. He's a walking example. I heard him being interviewed on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC in Canada, and he simply said, if you want to learn about nature, go live in nature. And that went directly into my heart, into my head, into my soul. It went everywhere, permeated every cell in my body. And I said to my husband, I think we should go live in nature. And we did that for four years. We lived right in a national nature park. And as you're sharing the shift in perspective, that's exactly what happened to me. I started to notice the raindrops on the leaves. I started to notice the bees. I started to notice the seasons. And I thought I would be bored out in the middle of the wilderness, so to speak. My days were very full because I was looking at things from another perspective. 
And the bonus was it was ever so healing, ever so tranquil. Just a beautiful, beautiful experience. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, I think it really is what I'm talking about. And gosh, I love that you did that. And I am also a great admirer of David Suzuki. I think that when we awaken in nature, as you did in this experience of living for four years, really out in the wild is what I'm hearing, is that as you probably are aware and as you describe it, it's like all your senses become awakened again. You begin to pay attention to these small, beautiful things. And in my own work, sort of what I realize is it's as if the earth is in conversation with us. So that when we notice those beautiful raindrops or the light shifting, there's a sort of call and response that goes on between our own wild souls and the wild earth so that we can be the only human beings for miles around and yet not feel lonely because this beautiful planet is in conversation with us and we are making the time and space to listen. And also on your website, I noticed that you have a section and it's called Wild Soul Story. You're sharing with people that a wild soul story is unique to a person, and I'm intrigued with that, and I'm wondering if you could give an example. Yeah, well, I think that we have, and we don't really talk about them enough. Many of us, most of us, if we are lucky, have had some moment in nature that, if we really think about it, had an impact on us in some way. So it can be oftentimes... It can be childhood, right? When we're children and we're out there rolling and tumbling and our little senses are exploring and crawling around, there we have an experience of being in the world and of ourselves that is quite amazing. It may feel quite enchanted or magical. And then oftentimes as we grow older, we sort of move away from that. And yet these moments can happen at any time. So for some people... You know, after a horribly busy, tense day, they're driving back in the car, back home, and they get a beautiful sunset out of their car window. And for a moment, they're reminded of the beauty and immensity of themselves and life. So every story is different, but what's really important is what we take out of that story. And that's what's so unique, because that's where our own wild souls meet the story we're telling. And if I may, I'll tell a brief wild story of my own, very, very brief. Would that oh, be all right? Certainly. Yeah, because it's sometimes easier to just kind of tell it and then people can see for themselves. So in 1983, I was 27 years old and I was an alcoholic and I had just quit drinking. If anybody has been in the thrall of an addiction, they know that when you stop, it can be a terrifying place to be because you don't know how you're going to function without using that thing that you used. And I was even at the point where I was still sort of sweaty and trembling and shaky from detoxes. And I was walking on the Marin Headlands on an incredibly stormy day, and the Pacific Ocean was churning beneath me, wild spume and crashing against the rocks. And what I realized is that it mirrored my 
my inner turmoil. And yet I had a sense of how immensely powerful the ocean was. And this thought came into my mind. What if, even though I'm terrified, even though I'm all churned up, I'm really strong too? And I tasted salt in my mouth, and I didn't know if it was mine or the ocean's. And I felt completely at one with that great body of water. And I knew in that moment that I would be okay. And the truth is, I have been okay. And as I've reflected back on that story, and this is really, I have come to understand that for me in that moment, the ocean gifted me with a realization of all my strengths, all of my ability to be with what was in that moment. And so it was a profound gift, I think, of incredible, listening to your earlier guests, of incredible generosity of the ocean to me in my hour of need. And I bet if people sat back, they might be able to think of maybe not such a profound story, but maybe the way nature's trying to converse with them on a daily basis. You mentioned earlier the sunset, or it could be the raindrops. It could be the smell of the fresh grass or something like that. Country roses on a bush in the wild. So it sounds to me like you're inviting, through your own experience, you're inviting everybody to create a space to hear what nature has to say. That's what I'm hearing. So from that, if nature speaks to us on an individual basis, does nature also speak to us collectively in your experience? Yes, I think it really does. And I think that's why, as I began to work with the nature poets and beginning to look at these themes that arose, I began to start working with the earth archetypes of the deserts and the forests and the oceans and rivers and the mountains and grasslands and realizing that there were these powerful earth landscapes that spoke to us collectively because essentially we've emerged out of these landscapes. They are our ancient ancestors. They hold incredible wisdom for us. The great thing about an archetype is it's both a collective and it's also deeply personal. So that doesn't take away from the fact that there'll be many commonalities in the way you and I respond to desert as there are across people and nations. But there are also things that will be particular to you, Mildred Lynn, and particular to me, Mary, and particular to whomever is listening, right? So there's this lovely sort of mix of something that is both universal and unique. Hmm, As you're speaking there, I'm going inside, and you mentioned the example of the ocean, And I know in my work, and I'm sure in your work too, many times we might invite people to go and be by the ocean, breathe in the ocean, exhale, inhale. And that seems to be a universal experience that people are touched by, or maybe a sunset, as you referred to before. And if I was going to ask you with the wild soul story, looking at the collective realm, what are some keywords that you might use to describe it, just to give our listeners something to hold on to? 
Right. Well, if you look, for example, at, say, the desert, I'm looking at things like silence, simplicity, emptiness, impermanence. You know, in the forest, we're looking at mystery, at shadow, at rootedness. Other things, too, but you can begin to see in the oceans and rivers flow. I have a piece called Originality, which is really mirroring the famine's journey to the source, beginning to discover who we are in the deep wells of our being right at the beginning. Funnily enough, in the oceans, the word I use is generosity, because we all emerged, all of life was birthed out of the oceans. And then in the mountains, we can have this sense of being called forth, right? So there's risk, there's mindfulness, there's influence, there's this sense of getting to one's higher self. As we go into the grasslands, it's really about this return to community. So we look at this sense of belonging, of resilience, of what we're planting and seeding of the greening of our own souls. I also put in the grassland sensuality because it's oftentimes in these soft grasslands and everything that we really get to sort of touch our own bodies to the body of the Mother Earth. So these are just some of the words that hopefully will evoke things in people. They're playing really with the metaphors that come out of these archetypes. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the archetypes, but first I wanted to ask you if there's tools that someone can use to reclaim their wild souls. Yes, many, many ways. One of the biggest things to know is if you can get yourself outside or even look out through your window at a tree, what you will notice on this particular day, in this particular moment, is what needs to be noticed within you in that moment. So, for example, I'm looking out right now and I'm seeing a tree that normally moves a lot, but what I'm noticing in this moment is there's a stillness. And so I'm saying to myself very quietly, what could this tree right now invite me to consider about honoring more stillness in my life? You know, normally I'm like the tree. I'm kind of shaking my little branches and moving in the wind every which way, every moment. But I'm just going, oh, stillness. Now, I, I haven't actually looked at the tree and noticed that before, but that's the message. So what I would say is, as you walk, as you go about, don't stay in your heads. Don't, don't be going over, so-and-so said to me, I said to them, oh, I've got to do. Just take a deep breath and notice the world about you. And what you'll do is your attention will land on something that has something to communicate to you. I really like that. <laughs> oh, my heavens. And I've experienced it, too. I must say, once you create a space for nature to talk to you, nature's quite chatty. And I don't mean in a, <laughs> a, a chatty way that's a distraction. I mean very, very enthusiastic about touching your heart, touching your soul. And for me, I feel like I'm wrapped in a cocoon. If you could talk to us about your earth archetypes as you've mentioned in your book, that would be so wonderful. Yes, what I'd like to say about them now is that I realized in a way that the way they're formed in the book also is the form of a heroic story and a heroic journey. 
or a heroine's journey, depending which gender you are. <laughs> and so when we think of the desert, for everybody, maybe just take a breath into that, that desert place. <sighs> it can feel like that moving away from community, that place of going alone. It's often the place of letting go. If you look at the desert, it's not about doing more. It's not about being effusive and hyperactive. It's really about letting go, of really coming into what is essential. And so we can see that as the beginning of the heroic journey. And then as we move into the forests, we're really living now into the mystery because we've left the world of what we know and understand, and we've moved in to living the questions, to not knowing, to wondering, to seeing not only what we are hunting, but maybe what is trying to find us. If you've ever stood in a dark forest, you can sense there are all kinds of things that are also pursuing you. And then as we move into the oceans and rivers, we're really connecting deeply with what we love. And if you think about water, you can think about how desire is expressed through water in our bodies. We do become wet with desire, and saliva rises in our mouth when we're hungry for something, when we long for something. So we can feel that watery nature of desire. And here we're really asking, what are we longing for? And the purer the water is, the purer the longing. And we can begin to see how when we mistreat the waters of the world, perhaps we're also mistreating our own internal longings. And this is true for every landscape, that what we do to the earth, we are doing to ourselves. And so we move to the mountains, where, as I said before, we're really now saying, what's the challenge? What am I being called forth to do here? In these times, knowing what I know, longing for what I long for, what am I being called? Where is my courage to show up? Where is the influence that I want to have? And then, how do I bring that back to community? How do I seed what I have lived and learned through this journey and bring it back and have it take root and bear fruit? And I didn't know that, by the way, until I started working with these archetypes. And then I went, ooh, <laughs> you know, the archetypes were teaching me what they wanted to be. And they said, we are actually archetypes embedded within another archetype, which is the hero's journey. From beginning to end, working with these archetypes, taking yourself through the archetypes, how long does it usually take? Are we talking about an inner process that may take a couple of years? I know everybody's different, but just out of curiosity. Well, <laughs> if I was going to be mischievous, I'd say it takes a lifetime because I think there isn't a destination. But what I think it's like, once you awaken these archetypes inside of you, so you get some familiarity with them, and that can happen even in my give workshops that are, you know, two and a half, three hours long, that they begin working on you. For example, I work with a lot of creative people, and they go, I'm so, I'm in such creative chaos, and we know that feeling, right, when all these ideas, and instead of panicking, we can just say, it's wonderful, you're in the forest. Just be in the forest, stand still, be there, be with the mystery, be with the chaos, it's okay. So the work, sort of once it's been seeded, you can't awaken an archetype and put it to sleep again. You can go to sleep again, but the archetype won't go to sleep. It's going to be working on you. 
So there's a short-term awakening, and then there's a long-term process, which I would hope would always be working on you throughout your life. Yes, it's like learning a new language almost. As you said before, a new perspective. You shift, and you suddenly become aware, and then that forms a structure. I love what you were sharing about someone in creative chaos and recommending the archetype of the forest, because all of a sudden when you said that, because I was envisioning the creative chaos, I calmed down immediately. Mm. So very powerful archetypes. And maybe because I'm connected already through the work I did in the wilderness by living there for a while, and maybe not. I think one of the reasons I love the archetypes is I wanted to work with people, not only people who are deeply connected to nature, but people who aren't. So I've had people who've come to my workshops, and for all kinds of reasons, some of them have been deeply wounded. They've Actually, they're afraid of nature. They've grown up in cities. They didn't get exposed as children. And this is happening more and more often, that people aren't being gifted experiences in nature. And yet the archetypes still allow them a way in, because archetypes live in us. So we can't not have a relationship with them, right? They're there. They're part of us. If someone's out there listening, and I know many people are listening, and they're probably at a point now where they're saying, I really like this concept, how can I integrate more wildness into my life? Can you give an example of that or a couple of examples? Yeah, I think, first of all, you really have to say what wildness is for you. So, for example, I was working with this woman. I call her Karen in my book. And for years, she hated her job. She hated what she was doing. And she really wanted to do arts and crafts and sort of live a more mystic. She was an intuitive. She was a dream interpreter, do all of these things. Things, by the way, that the modern world don't really make it very easy for people to do. So what we did was we hunkered into the forest. By doing that, we knew that in the darkness, we were preparing the ground for her blooming. And what happened was we worked on what she would do when things began to break through, where she would go, what she would do. And when she got a notice, she was fired from her job, everything was in place. She moved to a part of the country where she could live much less expensively and do the work that she knew in her heart had been seeded in her all of her life. So what I would say to you, really, wildness is about living authentically. And what you can do is look at nature that knows absolutely how to be itself and follow its principles. We hear biomimicry where we're beginning to design buildings and all kinds of things by looking at nature. We can also design our soul journeys the same way. We can say sometimes in the forest an acorn has to be in the earth, the dark earth, for a long time before it puts a tendril out. It's okay, I can do that too, because I know that I am really working on the ground of my being so that when that shoot comes up, it will have a chance of thriving. So just beginning to play with these metaphors and learning from them. In your opinion and from your experience, and I know you have tons of experience in this area, what would be the benefits of 
maybe knowing or integrating and living, actually living from your own wild soul once you start that journey? What I would say ultimately it's about aliveness. Well, I really think that the modern world, when we conform to it, when we think that we have to stress ourselves out, get more stuff, work so hard, disconnect from nature, therefore disconnect from our bodies, our senses, our sensuality, our enjoyment, I know the joy of life, then it's just sort of, it's so unenlivening. There's this deadening aspect where we kind of, we stress our way through life. And so I would say when you begin to live your wild soul story, you're beginning to see what brings you alive. And more and more you're beginning to incorporate that. There's a great David White line which says, anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. And I feel that, that when we really begin to look at nature, which is always about creating more aliveness, we learn how to become more alive ourselves. I know you work with people. Can you share specifically some positive outcomes that you've discovered, or even for yourself, by this knowing and integrating? You mentioned you're more alive. To me, that's your life force energy is vibrant and it's brilliant and you're looking at life from that perspective. Is there anything else that you've discovered? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I discover in the, the people that I work with is the ability to look at things outside of the very narrow purview of our modern industrial world. And that sounds a bit clunky and heavy, but the thing is that we are really caught up in a whole set of values and beliefs that we think are reality. But the earth is so much older than we are, and it is so much better at being itself (laughs) than we are. And so the biggest shift is that people begin to be able to look at themselves almost through the eyes of the earth, almost through the eyes of the earth. So sometimes people will say, like, oh, I've been struck by a tree. You know, a tree just captured my attention. And I'll go, what was that about? And they'll go, I felt in its presence an energy that was so powerful and so rooted in its own existence. And I thought, I want to be like that too. I was so attracted to that energy of the tree. I thought, how could I be more like that? And so I think it just kind of snaps us out of this mainstream thinking into a way more questions and creativity about our lives. And once we get curious, every person's path is different. I can't tell you what your path will be. I don't even know what my own path will be once I start opening. I mean, my life now, I would have had no idea I would be living this life once I began this journey. I don't think any of us know. Surprising things happen, and that's what I would say. You know, stay open, allow the archetypes of nature to work on you, and you will. What I do know is you will be more alive, more connected to yourself. What that will look like. I have no idea. I'm going to give ourselves a little two-minute break, and I picked a beautiful piece by Winnie Chafe. And then when we come back, 
I would love to talk to you a little bit about when normal people are entering the process that you're talking about, the process of reclaiming their wild souls. What comes up for them in terms of fears or thoughts or feelings? So how does that sound? That sounds perfect. Join Mildred Lynn McDonald for a fascinating tour of the mind-body-spirit connection. Enjoy nourishing conversations, thought-provoking guests, personal growth tools, compassionate guidance, practical tips, plus a generous sprinkling of East Coast humor and warmth. You'll also love our popular roundtable discussions featuring Deb Carousella, Heisey Lutmers, John Carousella, and Mildred Lynn. Airs the first Sunday of the month at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. For more information, please go to HealingConversationsWithMildredLynn.com. And we're back. Mary, are you there? I am. That was beautiful. (laughs) So let's go to starting to work with the concepts of integrating the wild soul into your life. And what starts to come up for people in terms of fears and thoughts and feelings? Anything to share there? Yes. You know, well, it's interesting because, as I've mentioned, the desert is the first of the landscapes. And so a lot of people would say to me, how dare you put the desert first, right? I don't want to go there. I really don't want to go there. I hate the desert. It's full of snakes and scorpions, it's hot, it's dangerous, it's dry. I'm in terror. I'm in terror. I don't want to go there. And I really hear that. I really, really hear that. So it's working through and understanding that we cannot begin a heroic journey until to some degree we have let go of some of our fears. We have the willingness to see our essential selves, which, you know, really when you think about the desert so bare of everything, you really see the bare bones of it. We cannot really set off on a journey of any danger, which any journey into the wilderness is, even into the wild soul. It has its amazing rewards 
but it also has its risks. It will confront us with things, all the things, the shadow things that we don't want to look at, as well as gift us with these incredible wisdom about who we are and our purpose in this world. But to begin the journey, we have to sort of know that we are enough. The beginning of the journey is not about doing or getting into action. It's about getting a sense of the fact that we are enough as we are. This is the beginning place, and to let go of all that is weighing us down. You can't take a journey when you're overweight down. So it's working with people because all of these landscapes come up. Different landscapes bring up different fears in different people. And some of us love to live predominantly in one of the landscapes. For example, I was a mountain girl. The risks of the mountain, I don't care. I've taken them. I've been in electrical storms at 15,000 feet and avalanches and you name it. Those aren't my fears. But stick me in the grasslands, I'm terrified. So what I notice is that we each have landscapes that we really have a comfort level with and others that bring up a lot of fears for us. So to know and to normalize that is the beginning. It's normal to have these fears and particularly to be frightened of certain aspects of these landscapes. It's okay, but that's where our learning edge is. And the landscapes will never let you down because these archetypes are set up to heal, to bring you to wholeness. So you can trust that. And I think that that's really important to know. And if you work with them a little, you'll begin to feel that. Oh, yeah, it caught me. It held me. It showed me. Mary, when you're working with people in terms of the archetypes, and I find it really interesting that you're sharing that some people feel very at home in some archetypes and not at home in the others, would it be helpful if you're feeling the fears or whatever to go experience the archetype, let's say, of the grassland or the archetype of the mountains. Have you found that's been useful, or is there another way to approach it? You're talking about literally to go into those landscapes. Oh, yes, yeah, literally, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, it is. It's tremendously. If people can take themselves off to those places, it's incredible. But you can also create spaces that feel like those places. So... We can't all head off to the desert, but you could create a space in your home that felt very sparse, very clutter-free. You could even include some cacti or some desert imagery, some rock, some sand. Or you could create a place. If the desert, for example, is a very barren landscape for you, maybe scary, go stand in an empty parking lot. That can feel awfully desert-like at times. So you can, and then just allow, lay yourself open for the feelings to emerge and move through you. I think that that's very important, is that we can just receive the feelings and allow them to flow through us, rather than holding them tight. If you can, just be aware of them. Don't judge them. Don't try and change them. Just acknowledge them. You know, here in the desert, I feel alone and frightened and deathly dry. Okay, let it move through you. It's okay, it's okay. I like that. And I noticed also that you've developed a wild soul Mandela. 
It's right on your website, right on the front page, and I was intrigued by that. It looks beautiful. How does it work? Thank you. It's in my book, too. It's the whole journey through the archetypes is really a journey to wholeness, wholeness related to that sense of healing. And so the mandala is really takes people through a three-step process of initiation, which is really that first taste. It's good that you bring it up here because the first thing is you don't have to dive right into the depths of these landscapes. You can just step into them slightly with the ability to step out if they're too uncomfortable, right? So it's just an initiation. But then as you become initiated, you move into the realm of realization. And also that realization is, ah, there's something here for me. I recognize some kind of synergy between this landscape and my own inner landscapes. And then the final piece is the reclamation, the understanding that some part of you is desert, is forest, is mountain is these landscapes. So it's initiation, realization, and then reclamation, really claiming those landscapes within yourself. And when you're giving your workshops and people are starting to have those ah moments and reclaiming the landscapes, do they ever use any words to describe how they're feeling that you could share? Yeah, well, you know, because I come out of poetry and journal therapy, We do a lot of writing in our workshops, and so everything is people write a lot. They write prose, poetry, they journal. It's not about trying to write beautiful English. It's about trying to find a wild language that they can pour onto the page and then to look at that and begin to go and sort of think, well, what was surprising about that? What did I learn about that? So I use a lot of language. I'm also incredibly excited to tell you that brilliant musician, a friend of mine, Richard Wormstall, has created music and soundscapes for each of these landscapes. And so we have a meditation and music so that people can actually physically move and dance. If your way in is very embodied, not only do we write, but we also move and dance to these landscapes. Mary, could you read us a passage from your book, if you happen to have it handy, which you probably do? I do. (laughs) I would love to. I'd love for our listeners to get a sense of how you express the concepts through your book. So if you'd be kind enough. Okay, thank you. I thought I would read from the preface of my book, which is titled My Own Wild Soul Story. And I'm going to read a few paragraphs and then take a big break and read the sort of final paragraphs. So this is my own wild soul story. The moon glinting of water, flying fish leaping from silver surf, and a beach of pebbled stones harboring sea glass smoothed by waves and glowing like jewels. A pig called Ramona I rode over mountain trails. London was where I grew up but it was a colorful village of Positano on the Amalfi coastline in southern Italy that introduced me to my wild soul. It was here on holiday as a very young child that I learned to cherish mountains and water, cobblestone streets, sticky with the sweetness of grapevines. Sages say there is a line inscribed in our souls for all of our life. If so, that line was written in me by Positano. The light in Positano was gentle, golden. 
It entered my body as a child. Today, the same rich golden light greets me every day in Northern California, where I make my home. When my life became small and dark and I was forced to confront my addiction, I realized that the light was inside me still. It had never gone out. It was there to illuminate my way forward. It is the same light that reminds me that life is a wild adventure filled with sacredness and wonder. I know the pain of being tamed, of being ripped from the roots and fashioned to fit the narrow purview of our modern world. Yet inner and outer nature evolve together. We are part of this amazing world we inhabit. Her creativity and her power are our birthright. To feel the breath of wildness come into your body is to reclaim your natural wholeness. It is to be enfolded by fields of grasses and held by the mountain's slow and steady strength. It is to hear in your own heartbeat the thunderous roar of the ocean, reminding you that your life still belongs to the wild earth. All you have to do is reach for her. Well, I could listen to you read all day. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mildred Lynn. (laughs) And if someone wanted to learn more about reclaiming their wild souls through writing or some of your workshops or retreats, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Please share your website address, and I'd love to hear what's coming up in this year, like in terms of the workshops and retreats and all that good stuff. Okay, thank you. So my website is www.maryreynoldsthompson.com. So it's just my name. And you can listen to lots of wild stories on there and look at my events page. And um, there are lots of beautiful poems by people. And so I hope it's a fun place for people to kind of go exploring. I am terribly excited that starting on Tuesday, I, for all women out there, I am doing a online course, six-week online course through Tree Sisters, which is a wonderful organization that empowers women as it reforests the planet. So 17 trees will be planted for every woman who takes this course, and we already have about 150 women from all over the world signed up. So wherever you live, if you're a woman, that's a way you can work with me. And then I work, obviously, with men and women. I'm doing a whole set of workshops coming up next week in Colorado. I'm going to be at the Boulder Bookstore there as well. And then I'm going to be in Mendocino. Then I am going to be living in England for two months this year. So I'm actually going to be doing some workshops in Salisbury in England in the months of September and October. So I'm pretty excited about that. But all of my events are on my event page and really love for people to go check that out. I realized that as you were talking about the earth, our inner wild souls, the archetypes, I was so enthralled by your message. I was almost forgetting my role. (laughs) I just said, yes, 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 I'd like to about this a little bit more. Oh, but oops, I can't do that right now. It's very seductive in the nicest possible way. Seductive in a way that you're hearing truth and that it's accessible to everybody and that it connects the dots and that it's a wonderful frame of reference. Mary, 
I'm so impressed with you. I really, Aww. really am. And your journey and your willingness and generosity to share your learning and share your personal story. Thank you, Mildred Lynn. Thank you so much. Before I sign up, I want to play a little bit more music. It's called Both Sides of the Tweed, and it's about a minute long. When we come back, if you would be kind enough to leave us with a thought or a piece of inspiration or motivation that we can all carry with us throughout the day, that would be wonderful. How does that sound? Perfect. Thank you. I will. Love to do that. Okay, so we'll reconnect in about a minute. listening to Healing Conversations with host Mildred Lynn McDonald on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Enjoy the show. And we're back. I'm talking with Mary Reynolds Thompson, and she's sharing fabulous information about her work. She's written a book. It's called Reclaiming the Wild Soul. Mary, are you there? I am. A little nugget of inspiration to take us I, through the day. This is from the divine Isadora Duncan. Funnily enough, I saw it on a bumper sticker yesterday, and I thought, it's perfect. You were once wild here. Don't let them tame you. Oh, you have to read that again. You were once wild here. Don't let them tame you. Oh, I like that. And wanted to ask you if you could share one more time your website, the name of your book, and the best way for people to get a hold of you. I'd love to. Thank you. My book is Reclaiming the Wild Soul, and my website is my name, MaryReynoldsThompson.com. And when you go on the website, you'll be able to find my email address and subscribe to my newsletter if you would like, and reach me very easily via my website. Thank you so much, Mary. And I hope that you will consider coming on our show again, maybe in about a year after you've had your journeys and you've gone across the pond and you have more wonderful insights and wisdom to share. I would love to, Mildred Lynn, and thank you so much for having me today and for all your wonderful, beautiful work. Thank you. We're talking with Mary Reynolds Thompson. 
She is the author of Reclaiming the Wild Soul. Thank you very much, Mary, and you have a wonderful day in California. You too, Mildred Lynn. Bye-bye. Join Mildred Lynn McDonald for a fascinating tour of the mind-body-spirit connection. Enjoy nourishing conversations, thought-provoking guests, personal growth tools, compassionate guidance, practical tips, plus a generous sprinkling of East Coast humor and warmth. You'll also love our popular roundtable discussions featuring Deb Carousella, Heisey Lutmers, John Carousella, and Mildred Lynn. Airs the first Sunday of the month at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. For more information, please go to HealingConversationsWithMildredLynn.com. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for joining us. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Revolution with Heisey Lutmers. Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.